Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Critical Science Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bergoon. So uh, I want to talk to you today about IARC and aspartame and does it cause cancer? The answer is no. Uh, we'll just cut straight to the chase. No, it does not cause cancer. It absolutely does not cause cancer. So why on earth did IARC say that aspartame is a possible human carcinogen? Why? How did they come to this idea? This is this is silly, right? So we're going we're going to examine this in a little bit more detail. Um, the first thing I want you to know about IARC. Let's start there. IARC is part of the World Health Organization. Um, I don't particularly care for IARC. I haven't particularly cared for IARC for quite some time. Uh, and there's a few reasons why. Uh, one of the reasons is that IARC tends to put so much weight on correlation studies. And specifically, I'm talking about epidemiological studies. The studies that they tend to use cannot be used to assign any kind of causality. It's just absolutely crazy. Instead, these are things where they're looking for a mathematical relationship that may or may not actually exist, but has nothing to do with, with causation. So the way I like to think of this is what, what they're doing is they're looking for correlations. Mathematically, that's how what they're doing works, is it's looking for correlations. It's no different than me trying to say, oh, you know what? Uh, shark attacks go up as ice cream sale, outdoor ice cream sales increase, right? The two are, are very highly correlated. But I'm pretty sure that purchasing ice cream outside doesn't cause people in oceans to be bitten by sharks. Instead, there's some other intervening factor that they have in common. And that thing that they tend to have in common is the fact that they both happen when, you know, it's hot outside and people want to be in the ocean and they want to be at the beaches. So it's one of these things that isn't truly a causal relationship, right? It's also not true that shark bites cause people to buy more ice cream. That's, that's not how this works, right? And so we can find these kinds of, we call them spurious correlations. We can find these all over the place if you're actually looking for them. And they happen a lot. So what we're looking at here is we're not looking at a good toxicological study that says, you know, here I've got a control group and here I've got a treated group. And the only thing that differs between them is simply just this thing that I'm trying to test to see if it causes cancer. So in this example, for instance, we don't have a case where IARC said, well, you know, the animal studies... Um, where they have a control group and they give uh, another group of, of very similar animals aspartame and then ask the question, does aspartame cause cancer? When you do those kinds of causal studies, guess what? Aspartame doesn't cause cancer. Wow. Newsflash. Aspartame doesn't cause cancer in well-controlled studies designed to assign causality. But, but... IARC says there's there's evidence and they're there. I will I will give them credit for this. I will give them credit. They don't say that, you know, it's known to cause cancer. They actually put it at one of their lower levels, which I mean, that that kind of made me a little bit happy that, you know, it's like mm, there is some evidence in humans. It's kind of weak. So at least they acknowledge that. 
Uh, you know, so that that I will give them credit for that. But my issue is the fact that when when this gets out to the public, when it gets out to you guys, what happens is that message goes away. And the only message people really, really, really hear is that top line headline, right? IARC says aspartame causes cancer. It doesn't. Aspartame does not cause cancer. Aspartame does not cause cancer. Let's be very clear about this. But how did how did IARC get to this place? Well, here's some things you got to understand about how IARC works. IARC does not look at industry-funded studies. Nope. They do not look at industry-funded studies at all. All they look at are you know, basically academically funded studies or studies funded by somebody who was not industry. Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because most of the data that is out there on aspartame safety was paid for by industry. Now, is industry science automatically tainted because industry did it? No. And I've talked about this in previous episodes there are very strict and extremely high standards that industry studies are held to. And when somebody breaks those standards, people can actually go to jail. It's a really, really, really big deal. You cannot supply falsified data to a regulatory agency. Also, because of the way that the standards and the protocols are written that, that the regulatory agencies require... There are multiple checks in the system. Now, because humans are involved, sometimes do these checks not happen? Sure. Are they supposed to happen? Yes. And when they don't happen, then big things can happen, like companies will stop using those services because most of these things are, most of these studies that industry pays for are not, are not happening within industry-owned labs. They are farming this out to third parties. There are lots of third-party laboratories that do this kind of testing. When these third-party laboratories, and there, there's been scandals about this uh, you know, recently as well, when it comes out, and it's generally found pretty easily, people like me can find these things pretty easily when we start doing audits, especially the data, then those companies that those third party companies and labs that were involved in this testing that are guilty of not following the protocols, they will, they will cease to exist. They will stop getting business. Nobody wants to do business with them because the regulatory agencies won't accept data from those labs anymore. So this is kind of a big deal. Or if they do accept data from those labs, they're going to have tons of additional uh, scrutiny placed upon them. They're going to have additional audits. They're going to have you know, additional hoops that they have to go through. So these companies try very hard to prevent this from happening. It does still happen on occasion, but it's extremely, extremely, extremely rare. Now, so there's no reason to say, oh, well, we shouldn't accept industry. So industry studies are perfectly fine. That's not what the issue is. And so some people say, oh, well, you know, industry studies, oh my God, those scientists are so biased, blah, 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 blah. Okay, you want to talk about bias. Let's talk about bias. Academics are not free from bias. Academics have to get money from somewhere. Generally, they get it from the federal government or they get it from a philanthropic foundation. 
Sometimes they get it from other uh, nonprofits. But at the end of the day, they need to get their money from somewhere. If, let's say, they get their money from a philanthropic nonprofit, sometimes this comes from activist groups. Now, someone can't criticize using industry data and then not like also criticize getting money from activists at the same time. Because in both cases, you have entities that, you know, probably have a vested interest in seeing the results one way or the other. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Here's why it doesn't matter. Academics, even if they're getting money from the federal government, they have to publish their results. It is nearly impossible to publish a paper that says, hey, guess what? This chemical does nothing. It's true. It's called the file drawer effect. It's very prevalent. We know about it. But most journals get to pick and choose what they, what they publish. And journals know that if you say a chemical is completely innocuous, you know, that paper probably isn't going to get a lot of citations. If the paper doesn't get citations, then the journal has this metric called an impact factor. That impact factor goes down. When the impact factor goes down, that means that that's a signal to other academics and other scientists who publish in the journal that, Maybe this journal isn't uh, very good because for whatever reason, people aren't citing the, the studies here. Is it because the studies are bad? Is it because the studies aren't um, worthwhile? You know, these journals tend to be very choosy about what they publish. Just because it's good science doesn't mean it's actually going to get published. That's why industry studies tend not to get published. There's no incentive for industry to publish these studies. Academics have all kinds of incentive because that is how they get promoted and that's how they get tenure. Tenure being that, you know, lifetime appointment, they can't be fired except for extremely good cause. And what happens is this creates a very perverse incentive to publish. Uh, When I was in academia, well, even still today, we call it publish or perish. If you're not publishing papers and you're not publishing them in the best journals, you probably are not going to get tenure, which means you're going to have, you're going to lose your job, right? You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose, you're going to lose your lab. So that's why you will tend to see, you know, and I'm not saying that this happened in this particular case, but I am saying that in many cases, I can't trust the literature because I find all kinds of problems with it, which brings me back to Well, then how do we judge if everyone's biased and everyone has, you know, all these perverse incentives going on? How do we judge the studies? It's simple. You look at the science. Scientists are trained to do that. Now, most reporters are not trained to do that. But most reporters who are reporting on science that I read, unfortunately, have lost some of their credibility with me because they're not being skeptical. Journalists are supposed to be skeptical, just like scientists are supposed to be skeptical. People get mad at me all the time for saying, you know, this study is not that great. Oh, my God. How dare you say that? Blah, 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 blah. And I come back with, okay, so let me give you this laundry list of all the problems with the study. Right. No study is perfect. And I'm not saying we need to you know, get perfect studies. I'm just saying, you know, we need to do better science, for God's sakes. So coming back to this. What needs to happen is we need to we need to be looking at the science more critically. We need to go beyond the headlines 
we need to go behind there. We need to be looking around. We need to pull up the curtain. We need to see what's what's actually going on in the study itself. And there are certain things that even lay people can do just as basic rules of thumb. Uh, and, you know, we talk about some of those things with respect to sample sizes. You know, if you see a sample size that's really tiny, uh, you know, you probably can't, you know, believe it at all. Um, there's issues with p-values, you know, when they use p-values and they report p-values, there's issues there as well. So there's certain things, and I've trained journalists, I've trained, you know, lay people on how to do this. Um, and so, and, and through the podcast, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, you, you're able to pick up some of these things. So I'm going to walk through very quickly some of the things that I'm seeing in the studies that IARC used. And I'm not going into a deep dive. These are just some things that, you know, just stood out to me very quickly that you can also say, hmm, yeah, that's that's probably not the greatest idea. So IARC cited three studies, and uh, there's the Stepien and colleagues, Jones and colleagues, and McCullough and colleagues. And like I said, the problem is these three studies are epidemiological studies that don't look at causality. They're only looking at associations or correlations. Anytime you see in a headline or the press, they say, well, this study found that X is associated with cancer, um, replace the word associate with correlate, it means the same thing. It means that there is no causation identified. And that really what we could be looking at is sharks, shark bites, and outdoor ice cream sales, that kind of thing. If we start off with the Jones, um, the Jones and colleagues study that was published in 2022. Um, here's the thing you got to remember with a lot of, not a lot, it was some epi studies you know, they, especially with cancer, you're talking about a 30 year time window. Got it. So people answered a survey way back in the nineties, 1995 to 1996. And they asked them about all kinds of things. You know, what do you drink? What do you eat? Um, exercise smoking, I believe was in there. Um, and they surveyed people just in California, Florida, Louisiana, New Jersey, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. They also looked at two metro areas. They looked at Detroit and Atlanta. And here's the deal, folks. They sent the survey to people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Now, full stop. Let's think about this. What portion of our society has the highest likelihood of getting cancer? It's not children. It's not tweens it's not teens it's not young adults you know which includes college folks right it's not them the demographic that has the highest likelihood of cancer are in their 50s 60s and 70s so think about that for a second they're looking at the oldest part of our population who are the most likely to get cancer. And they're asking them about, you know, do you drink this? Do you, what, you know, what are you taking in? Blah, 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 blah. Right. They're asking them all these great questions. Cool. But these are people in their fifties, sixties and seventies. These are the people who are most likely to get cancer. Right. So this study is not relevant to anyone outside of those age groups. Number one, you cannot draw inferences about any other age groups. Now you're going to say, now, but you know, if you're drinking aspartame, 
you know, aren't you really going to get your, you know, cancer in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? Yes, but here's the thing. And people don't like to hear this. Cancer, unfortunately, is a disease of old age because it is a disease of our bodies getting old. If you live long enough, you will likely die of cancer. That's just a fact of life. When you think of this from an evolutionary biology standpoint, cancer is basically a cell winning the evolutionary uh, lottery. It, it's, you know, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm being very clinical here. I'm being very, you know, uh, brazen scientific about this. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say cancer isn't horrible. All I'm saying is cancer is kind of the natural way of things. If you were to live long enough, you will die of cancer. That's just the fact of life. Because what's happening with cancer is, is basically your cells are growing uncontrolled. That means that several things have happened. Your immune system is not working the way it should, right? Because in order for cancers or in order for tumors, before it's even a cancer, in order for a tumor to really grow, the tumor is going to have to evade the immune system. Tumors also need a lot of blood. So they have to somehow overcome this ability of just living through osmosis. They have to create their own blood supply. So there's all these things that have to happen. Cancer is a very complex thing. But eventually, if you leave cells to their own devices and they're allowed to live forever, there is going to be a population of cells that will figure out how to do this. And that's cancer. It's perfectly normal part of aging, unfortunately, and it sucks. And I don't want cancer. It sucks. But unfortunately, that's, that's biology. Now, in the Jones study, they also include people who responded to a different study. So they're combining two different studies. Uh, and this other study in, involves individuals in D.C., Washington, D.C., Detroit, Honolulu, a few other places. They tracked these people um, over time, and they were looking, they, they were matching people up with death certificates and uh, their entry on uh, cancer registries, uh, for instance. Now, there's a lot of problems here. You know, like I said, the older people are overrepresented in cancer samples. White males are overrepresented in the cancer sample. Smokers are overrepresented in the cancer sample. So the people who have cancer in the study are mostly, uh, sorry, obese people. I've, I said older, I meant obese. Obese individuals, white males, and smokers. They're the ones who are overrepresented within the cancer sample. Now, to make a causal argument, you need to match those cancer cases with non-cancer cases that are as identical as possible, so that the only factor that differs is the artificial sweetener usage. But that's not what they did. They tried to do it mathematically, but it doesn't work because those samples don't exist. Oh, by the way, um, this is kind of important. I, I forgot. I'm checking my notes right now. Um, they lumped all the artificial sweeteners together. Yep. You heard me right. They lumped all of the artificial sweeteners together. So this isn't a study of just aspartame. But here's the kicker. All of their hazard ratios are tiny. That is the effect size. So basically, that is the proportion of people who, who have cancer who also use artificial sweeteners 
you know, what is the uh, percent um, increase? That is their, that's essentially the hazard ratio. It's, it's a little different from that, but that's, that's essentially it in a nutshell. And these hazard ratios are so tiny. They have no information about how much artificial sweetener, how much aspartame, right? They have no information that says that, oh, well, you know, if you took in more artificial sweetener, you took in more aspartame, you're more likely to have cancer. No, they don't have that. They didn't do that. So there's a lot of questions about relevance here. It's hard for people to recall what their intake of soda is like. It's especially difficult when it could be extremely variable, right? My intake of soda is all over the place. I don't drink soda every day at the same amount. It's all over the place. Sometimes I just drink water all day, you know, and I'm someone who likes sugary snacks and sweets and, and, and pop soda, where you want to call it, where I'm from, we call it pop. I, I know other people call it soda and I don't want to get into that war. Um, but you know, the thing that really troubles me is that their analysis is completely unbalanced and, you know, you have 158 cancer cases versus 47,000 non-cases. And they're saying, oh, well, this is significant. Well, the problem is when you have that much imbalance with so few cases compared to the number of controls that you're comparing to, this actually leads to an inflation of false positive rates. What does that mean? That means that the likelihood that you're going to say that the people drinking um, artificial sweeteners have cancer is actually going to be higher than it should be. So really, this is not very trustworthy science. You know, with the stepping and colleagues, again, you know, what's kind of interesting is that there's an obvious conflict of interest. Now, I'm not one who believes in these things, but, you know, for the folks who do, like a lot of the uh, advocacy groups who want to say, oh, my gosh, did you know that Coca-Cola front group, Ilse, had representatives on the uh, FAO group that uh, looked at aspartame, you know, okay, fine. If you want to play that game, which is just utterly nonsensical, then we have to point out the fact that the Stepien and colleagues paper, which IARC has as one of their three that they looked at is actually paid by IARC. Think about that. And IARC had several employees who are co-authors on that paper. That doesn't seem right. Does it? I mean, if you're, if, I personally don't care because I care about the science, right? So I say, don't look at who paid for it. I don't, I don't care who pays for it. Look at the science. But if you want to be the one who raises the thing, you know, raises the flag that says you can't use industry science because it's biased. Well, here you go. How are you going to address this one? IARC paid for this study that they then said is one of the best studies that they're going to therefore use in their assessment. If that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. But for some reason, the advocacy groups don't have a problem with this. I don't know. I think that's kind of silly. Like I said, it's a nonsensical argument. I don't buy into that argument. I want to focus on the science. And my issue with this particular study, I'm, I didn't, I stopped. Once I saw how many people were in the study, I stopped. They have 101 people. 101. That's how many people they looked at. I stop right there. If you have a human study and you're only looking at 100 people, no. If you're, if you're doing a human study and it can fit into a, uh, a lecture hall at a Big Ten university, I'm sorry, I'm done. That, that's, that's not enough. 
That is not enough people to be looking at. We would never, ever, ever, ever approve a drug for human safety based on a study of just 100 people, unless we're talking about a rare disease. So I'm just full stop. That's, that study is just no. That should never have even been looked at. Then there's McCullough and colleagues. Here, I have an issue. I don't care about funding, but the only kind of conflict of interest I do care about is when the author of a paper that is being used as part of an assessment is on the panel judging what studies should be used. McCullough is actually sitting on the IARC panel that made the decision to use her study. Now, I I will say, sometimes, based on my experience uh, in talking to folks who, you know, have actually led IARC, I I know one of the folks who was uh, a director at IARC for uh, several years, um, I've been told that in these cases, it is common to have the person leave the room when their paper is being discussed. Cool. Unfortunately, here's the problem. That person has already influenced the group. Do you honestly think that, you know, this person is socializing with the group, they're making friends with the group, right? That's that's how these things work. And now, how is that group going to then say to this person, "Hey, you know, you're a great person and all, but we really didn't like your study." Is that really going to happen? I'm sorry. Social psychology tells us no. I remember that from my social psych class, but I'm here to tell you, I've been in rooms like that. It doesn't work. The person never should have been impaneled in the first place. Okay. There are other issues with this. This, this study is what we call a fishing expedition. They didn't actually have a hypothesis. They were doing so many statistical comparisons that with every additional statistical uh, test that you run, you're increasing the likelihood of getting a false positive. This is a well-known thing in statistics, which is why her study is what we call a fishing expedition. She's looking for something. She wants to find something. We also call them screening uh, studies. If you want to be less pejorative, you call it a screening study. If you want to be more pejorative, you call it a fishing expedition. I personally call a lot of my studies that do this kind of thing a fishing expedition. Uh, I happen to like fishing. I think it's great. But, you know, some people think that's kind of pejorative. So we might call it a screening uh, study as well. Bottom line is this. They're looking for something. But then you have to stop at that point and you have to realize that I might have a lot of false positives. And so that study could then form the basis for the next one. So the even less pejorative term for these is hypothesis generating. I did a lot of hypothesis generating studies when I was in graduate school. A lot of my studies were that way. And then we would follow up those hypotheses and test them. That is how science works. This is a hypothesis generating study at best. They should have followed up their hypotheses about, you know, death rates and cancer and such like that. That's what they should have done. It's not. So they use these three extremely, extremely flawed studies to then say, yeah, aspartame causes cancer in humans. Yet, when you look at the evidence that the FDA looks at, and by the way, this is what people don't realize. 
the FDA doesn't solely look at studies that are submitted by industry. FDA looked at Stepien. They looked at the Jones study. They've looked at the McCullough study. They look at all these studies that come out about aspartame as part of their surveillance. They look at all this stuff. And FDA has come back down yet again to say aspartame does not cause cancer. It doesn't. There is a safe level for aspartame. The FDA has set that. And it is based on the science that they have available, which includes these academic studies and and stuff that comes from industry. By the way, um, just as a quick aside, industry studies tend to have more subjects, more animals, more whatever than academic studies because they have deeper pockets. When you have more subjects in there, you are more likely to actually get uh, to, I don't want to call it the truth, but you know, closer to the scientific truth. You're getting closer to what the population response is actually going to be. Um, I'll talk about this on another episode, but there's this thing called the law of uh, large numbers, which basically says as your sample size increases, um, your samples are more likely to look like the population they're drawn from. And we'll talk about that more uh, in, in another episode of the podcast. Anyway, I've, I've yammered on for like 30 minutes now. I didn't mean to yammer on for 30 minutes. Man, time goes by fast. This is what I want you to know. If you remember absolutely nothing else I just told you, remember this. Aspartame does not cause cancer. All right? Number two, IARC is a hazard identification organization. IARC will never tell you what level is safe. That is not their job. That is not what they do. What IARC will do is IARC will tell you, yeah, it could cause cancer. But here's the deal. IARC likes to look at high-dose studies, which do not represent levels of something that we will generally ever ingest. So just keep that in mind. So when you go through the list, oh, by the way, IARC also says that lunch meat will give you cancer. Um, Hot coffee will give you cancer. Going outside and taking a deep breath will give you cancer because IARC says that outdoor air will give you cancer. There's lots of things that IARC says will give you cancer that, guess what, will never cause cancer in any of us because we will never get those levels, right? Or the studies are just absolutely ridiculously bad. Like in this case, these studies are horrible, in my humble opinion. I don't want to get sued for defamation. These studies are horrible, in my humble opinion. I always have to say that. The lawyers keep, the lawyers keep reminding me that whenever I criticize someone, I have to make sure that I say, you know, it's my opinion. That way then I can't get sued for defamation. Uh, I love my lawyer friends. They're great. They keep me out of jail. They keep me from having to get sued uh, for speaking my mind. Anyway... So having said that, in my opinion, the aspartame decision from IARC is garbage. There we go. That's my bottom line. Thank you for listening to the uh, Critical Science Podcast. You know, do me a favor. Uh, tell your friends. Uh, like and share all that stuff. Uh, the podcast with folks. Uh, I, we have a website for the podcast. It's uh, critsipod.com. That's C-R-I-T-S-C-I-P-O-D.com. If you would like to support the podcast, uh, we we are taking um, 
uh, donations to, to help offset some of the costs and whatnot. Get it out there. Please uh, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your dog, I guess. Not sure dogs would appreciate this as much, but you know, tell people you know. Anyway, that's my call to action. Thank you, everyone. I hope you have a great day.